0: This program is brought to you by Shell Energy, who is helping guide businesses through their energy transition by offering a tailored energy roadmap and solutions across the energy value chain. Learn more at shellenergy.com business. The energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and you're listening to Horizons, A podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. The transition to a carbon-neutral economy throws up many challenges. The focus is often on the technology needed or the types of renewables that will be used. Today, we look at the raw materials themselves and how they're going to enable decarbonization. EVs, batteries, and solar panels are going to play a huge part in getting to net zero. But without copper needed for wires, cables, and foils, they are largely useless. On the podcast today, how can the copper and raw materials industry keep pace with the rate of electrification needed to meet the Paris Agreement? How can the producers, investors, and governments, manufacturers, and consumers take action to meet the growing demand for raw materials? Joining me to discuss these topics and more is Wood Mackenzie's Nick Pickens, who joins us from London. Nick has over 20 years of experience as an analyst in the metals and mining sector and has worked across base, bulk, and precious metals. He's been involved in copper research with Wood Mackenzie for over seven years and now takes a lead role as a research director. Nick, welcome to your first Horizons podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Liz. It's good to be here. I'm very much looking forward to talking about copper.
0: You and me both. <laughs> as always, I like to get to the bottom line up front right away. Can you give us one key takeaway from today's discussion that all listeners should know?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, we want to get the message across that copper is going to be critical for the future energy transition and to, and to reach the climate goals set under the Paris Agreement.
0: Copper is key. Got it. Also joining us today is Bernard Rispo, Chief Executive of the European Copper Institute. Bernard, welcome.
2: Many thanks for the invitation. Looking forward also to a very good discussion.
0: For a little bit more about your background, you became chief executive of the European Copper Institute in 2017, also known as the ECI. Besides driving the advocacy efforts of the copper industry in Europe, you also lead the Clean Energy Transition Program of the International Copper Association, of which ECI is the European branch. Whew! Indeed. Same question to you. What is one thing you would like all listeners to know?
2: Indeed, copper a key material for getting to climate neutrality. And getting there with copper will require a very holistic co-creation, collaboration scheme to get there. It's not only depending on the copper industry.
0: Interesting. I'm really excited to get into the questions. Uh, Before we do that, can you give us a little bit more background into your work at the ECI?
2: So ECI, we are the advocate of the copper industry in Europe, which means we monitor what is happening on the legislative and also on the market side. To make sure that copper keeps a fair share in being a key material for electrification, for electrical appliances, but also for thermal applications. I'll get back to this during our discussions today. And we also take initiatives towards policymakers to make sure that the conditions are there for the copper industry to keep developing in a sustainable way and also to keep playing this key role for society in terms of enabling the decarbonization.
0: So with that, let's go ahead and set the scene. Why is copper so important as a raw material?
2: Well, about 70% of copper use is in applications which are linked to electricity. And if you look at these trends, this plan to get to a climate-neutral economy, a lot of this will be linked to electrification. So it's about new sources of energy. We want to go away from fossil fuels. Well, it's wind power, it's solar power. This is all transforming one source of energy, wind and sun, into electricity. And you need to capture and transport and store this electricity. But also, if you look at more efficient energy use, because it's not only shifting the mix of energy, it's also better use of energy, so more energy efficiency. Copper also plays a role there. If you put more copper in an electric motor, if you Have a different dimensioning, you get to high efficiency of these motors. So it's on both elements of the climate neutrality, energy efficiency, and renewables that copper plays a major role.
0: Interesting. Nick, anything from your side that you'd like to add here?
1: No, look, I, that's exactly right. You know, it, it's, it, Copper's role here is, is it's an electrical conductor um, and it's it is the best material and only material in many end-use applications, as, as Bernard said. So um, the, the key question, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, is how, how are we going su- to, to supply this, this material? Um, maybe we can put some metrics around that.
0: Uh, anytime we can throw numbers in there, it's going to be a good conversation. <laughs> so with, yeah. with that in mind, where does most of our current demand come from?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, 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 as we've been saying, it's a lot, obviously, it's an electrical conductor. Uh, the electrical network is a key area of, of end-use demand, so build-out of, of grid networks, probably around 30% or so of, of demand. It's also used in, in, in building and construction, and in, in the building wires. that's probably another 30% or so of, uh, of total consumption transport uh, interestingly enough and, and you know it's transport where actually we see a lot of the the growth over the next 20 30 years with energy transition is at the moment a relatively smaller segment of, of end use uh, demand we, we think about between 10 and 15 percent depending on how you you divide it and then the remainder is is really in, in sort of electrical appliances and con- consumer goods and, and that kind of thing anything from air conditioners, washing machines and, and obviously electrical devices and, and so on.
0: Is there anything surprising that people wouldn't assume that copper is a a key component of?
2: Actually, people see definitely the link between copper and electrical conductivity. Yeah. But they don't see also the role of copper in thermal conductivity. And Nick touched one application, air conditioning. The heat exchange in an air conditioner is with copper, uh, small diameter copper tubes. And with the energy transition, there is another application which is taking traction where copper plays through the thermal conductivity, heat pumps. Instead of having a gas boiler, take a heat pump, better coefficient in terms of energy efficiency, no uh, CO2 emissions. But again, for the heat exchange, copper has definitely a role to play also.
0: Okay, that is fascinating. I didn't even know that. And I feel like once on Jeopardy, someone mentioned that, that copper was in coins, but it's, it's not another place that I'd immediately associate. So that's where current demand is from. Where do we expect demand to increase? I know electric vehicles are something we talk about all the time. Are they more copper intensive than their internal combustion equivalents?
2: Yes, definitely. Um, first, the battery, the battery to connect all these cells that make the battery on top of the foil to collect the current, but then to connect all these cells, you need also copper connectors. And then from your battery to your electric motors that drives your car, you need high power cables. This is also made of copper. You need, of course, copper in your electric motor, in the stator and more and more in the rotor. And then you also need copper for the thermal management of the battery because battery tends to emit Quite an amount of heat, and you need to manage this. And there again, these thermal conductivity of copper also plays a role in electric cars.
1: I mean, and then the, I guess the important point to make here is that it's it's the additional intensive use that we see for, for copper in these uh, electric vehicles versus an internal combustion engine car, for example, that that really is the kicker in terms of future demand because we are going to see a growth in absolute terms, you know, volume growth of, of manufacture of these cars. But you know, if, if we think that uh, you know an EV has got anywhere to two, three, even four times more copper than than an you know, internal combustion engine, then obviously that that accelerates the, the requirement.
2: And on top of that, you need to load these electric cars. So you need charging infrastructure, and there per unit, per charging pole uh, for electric cars, we count around two to 2.5 kilo of copper needed.
0: As someone that owns an electric car and loves my electric car, these are both key things. Without the charging infrastructure, it's pretty useless as a vehicle. You can't even sit in it and watch Netflix, and where's the fun in that? In terms of electric vehicles, though driving up copper, do we have a sense of how much that might drive up copper demand?
1: So yeah, I mean, we, we've done some um, some some modelings, and then you know, part of the reason uh, we're, we, we're talking today is we put some research out looking at w- what it takes to deliver well zero carbon uh, over the next uh, 20, 30 years, um, and EVs being a, a key part of that, and in fact. We're looking at total consumption across all end use sectors growing from something like 28 million tons through to to, to 50 million tons, and, and about of that incremental growth, um, EVs is a big portion, uh, something like 9, nine and a half to 10 million tons of additional copper. And we think that to, to get to that zero carbon, we'd be looking at uh, EVs as a, as a as a sort of segment of autos would, would need to grow from well less than 10 percent of the market today, close to something like 70 uh, percent. Uh, over the next 15-20 years. So it has to be huge gains in market penetration for us to deliver zero carbon uh, and that will require um, you know significant amounts of copper.
0: So if we could do that, if we could go from less than 10% to 70% of electric vehicles, would that put us on a path to achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement?
1: on our analysis that well that will be one contributing factor um obviously there's there's many other things as well that need to happen for us to, to reach zero carbon across you know all industries uh, and, and and as we've stated in the research that it's not just copper that's a critical mineral in in this in this journey um, but but we believe that yeah, that's what it will take from a sort of EV perspective to reach 1.5 degrees uh, or, or cap the climate change to 1.5 degrees by 2050.
2: If today transport is about 15% of the global anthropogenic emissions. So it's important to solve, but that's not the, the full solution.
0: And so you're you're saying we would need an extra ten million tons of copper to support that less than ten to seventy percent increase in EVs.
1: That's correct. Yeah.
2: That's up to twenty
1: fifty? Twenty fifty, yes. That's spread over the next uh, two, three decades. Yep. But mm-hmm. um but yeah, it's, um, it's a significant volume. If you think the total consumption today is about 30 million tons. So.
0: Wow, and that's just the automobile market. So as the decarbonization of power generation is underway, how about wind?
2: Yeah, that's a big sector also. Just to give you a number, a windmill requires between three to five tons of copper per megawatt of installed capacity. And we see more windmills coming in. Solar panels, also three tons per megawatt. So all these renewable energy creation or generation capacities are going to drive definitely an additional demand for copper compared to the use of copper in the current fossil-based um, energy system. This is an increase per megawatt of capacity installed. And also, you since you get into a decentralized system of energy generation, Everybody will have solar panels on their house, etc. You need to interconnect all this, so that's the smart grids that will also require additional cables. Uh, So that's also additional copper. Yeah. So
1: I mean, again, some throwing some numbers based on the research we did. We think power generation for renewables, so wind and and solar, is going to need another two or three million tons, or actually two, two million tons, just over out to 2050 to reach zero carbon. Um, but the big impact actually in, in, in our analysis is on, on the grid, right? So, um, you know, another uh, 67 million tons of uh, additional copper to, to build out the grid. Uh, I mean, there are sort of gray areas with these numbers in terms of, you know, so do you count it as grid or do you count it as wind solar power generation? But, um, you know, to, it, it, it's it's a you know a significant amount of uh, additional um, volumes needed.
2: We have a, a very similar estimate. It's about 9 million tons extra for electricity generation and transmission up to 2050.
0: So not to call out the elephant in the room here, but I'm sure our listeners are thinking about it because I'm thinking about it. Where are we going to get all this copper from? And do we have enough copper that we can get in a sustainable and green way?
1: Well, in in my opinion, it's going to be challenging. That's for sure. Um, But it's never been easy to produce copper, right? Copper is uh, to to sort of explore, develop, and and bring online a, a new copper mine is no easy thing. Uh, it takes time and it takes a lot a lot of investment. Uh, and so to you know accelerate that copper supply, it's going to need huge focus and, and buy-in from um, from governments, from mining companies and from in- investors. The, the, the other thing to, the point to make about copper obviously is that it's a, it's a finite resource. so if you, if you look at our forecast and we, again, we're talking about this time frame over the next 20, thirty years, um, if if we look at the copper mines that are producing today, then the production falls over that time period as, as reserves deplete and as, and as grades decline. Um, and at the same time, we've got this growth in, in, in demand that needs more copper. Um, so that means you have this in, in implied gap opening up um, that requires filling. When we, when we look at that accelerated uh, transition uh, scenario, we, we think you, you need close to sort of 10 million tons of, of additional copper over the next 10 years to, to, to keep on to, on that trajectory. And so yeah, that will have to come from projects that have yet to be sanctioned and committed to. And there's no doubt in my mind, it will also have to come from from other sources as well um, that in, including secondary um, supplies um, such as such as scrap and recycling.
2: Actually, that's yeah, the the big challenge is time. as uh, Nick yeah. underlined, you need time to develop a new mine. Uh, it's sizable capital investments. You need to find the right deposits, and that's not not easy. Just to give you an order of magnitude, but the the average copper content of mines today is around 0.6%. So it's not like uh, I come from the sand business. The sand mine, good sand, it's 98% of um, CO2. No, here we're really speaking small numbers, so you need to find the right sweet spots. Um, There still are, because if you look at the geological reserves and resources, there is enough, but you need time to develop this. So there is um, a time race here, which is the challenge. And that's where, indeed, as Nick underlined, in the short term, increasing the recycling rates, which means increasing the capture of copper in products that come to their end of life, could help in the short term to, to meet the demand increase, because installing recycling capacities take less time than, developing a new mine from scratch, definitely. But the challenge there, again, is that on average, a copper-containing product has 35 years of life. So when it's produced, when it starts its use, well, it's not like glass, which you can recycle after less than a year. If we speak about packaging glass, no, in copper, you need more time. So it's not something that's is going to be available by the turn of a a key that will also require new business models. And yeah, sometimes it's better design of the products to make also the recuperation of copper workable, technically and financially also. But recycling is part of the solution. It's not the full solution. No, uh, we will still need more mining, but that could be a help. For sure. And I think, I mean, just circling back on that
1: interplay between primary and secondary, and... We talked about some of the challenges on bringing on new mining projects, and hence that this requirement for for scrap. I, I would argue that now it's it's harder to bring on mining projects than it has been at any point in in, in the past. Um, certainly, we're seeing that in, in in the numbers at the moment. If, if we look at previous cycles, uh, we can see certainly when prices are high uh, and and the market is confident and 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 the, the money is available from investors, that uh, new mining projects do get sanctioned and brought forward. We've just come through a period of, of relatively high prices, and we really haven't seen the amount and volume of projects sanctioned that we have in, in, in previous cycles. And part of the reason for that is that we haven't had the pipeline advance enough. So we've had, um, you know, we've got something like 17 million tons worth of projects that we can identify out there um, that are relatively advanced, but only sort of two to two and a half million tons of those are kind of ready to go if if, if a mining company was ready to, to push the button today. And, and that's the, that's the concern, I think.
2: One element that plays also in these lead times, and this is where we speak up as advocates of the copper industry, permitting takes sometimes ages. So if there is a way to still keep the same requirements for sustainability, but if we can accelerate the permitting to get the environmental permits, et cetera, to open up the mines or to expand existing mines, that can definitely be also a solution to get more capacity on board when it is needed.
0: Wind, solar, natural gas. How much? How little? How many hows does it take to meet your business goals? Shell Energy knows the energy transition can throw a lot at you. Opinions, facts, numbers and data seem endless and can cloud the path ahead. But what if they can make this whole transition a bit easier to navigate? Shell Energy has the size, scale and solutions to help move you forward. And while they can take you from A to Z, they know that the most important move is often just getting from A to B. And they're already doing it with some of the world's leading companies, providing new and innovative solutions to help you manage energy consumption and reduce your carbon footprint by providing tailored energy roadmaps that make sense for your business. So keep on moving forward. And with Shell Energy's expertise, what once seemed challenging will seem easier by the day. Learn more at shellenergy.com business. I have so many more questions to jump into here, and I'm not quite even sure where to start. But I'm a geologist by background that listeners will know because I mention it as a badge of pride pretty much every chance I get. From a geological perspective, speaking of mining, do we have a, a raw sense of how much copper we can easily get to and then what advances in technology will unlock additional copper? For instance, with with hydrocarbons, the advent of unconventional[s] unlocked a whole bunch more subsurface deposits than we had traditionally. Are there is there a sense of that for copper as well?
1: I mean, there's 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 lots of ways to look at this. Certainly, you know, it's, it's always hard to predict, the, you know, new technologies that we haven't seen yet. Yeah. But
0: <laughs> you don't have your technology magic eight ball on you. Come <laughs> on, guys. If,
1: if I had a magic one to bring on all of that copper, I would yeah, <laughs> I'd be a rich, man. But uh, I think um, what we can see the emergence of is ways to extract value and, and copper from sort of lower grade material that's been mined previously. So what I'm thinking about specifically here is things like sulfide leach. So there's this, you know, um, as, a, as a mine, uh, certainly a big porphyry copper deposit in, in it, the type of which we see in America's um, develops or, or, or transitions from a sort of oxide cap, which can be extracted through acid leach into sulfide. It it, it shifts from a one particular process to another, and often that transitional material is kind of lost or not recovered and I think that there is certainly a lot of um, advancements now in, in around sort of sulphide leach and, and, and looking into how we can kind of extract some, some more value from um, from from, from that, those particular types of deposits. So that's kind of one area I think there is potential for, for more life extensions and for um, incremental expansions but again we're talking at the margins here and it's not going to be the equivalent of bringing on a brand new uh, greenfield project.
2: No, it's going to be, as you say, it's going to be marginal improvements, which is good, which is recuperating a key material, but it's not going to move the needle significantly. In terms of copper production, we we've had some really good improvement, more on the energy efficiency side, uh, with the introduction of the blast furnaces for smelting. But that's more already downstream after the mining. But the mining of copper, well, it's like for every metal, you have to get the rock out to concentrate it the best you can, especially if you have low grades like we have. And then you have to use heat to get into into the final metal.
0: In terms of recycling, going back to the conversation we had earlier, it sounds like large-scale coin drives to recycle all the copper-containing coins are probably not going to be a solution. But what specifically does need to be in place to increase the recycling rates of copper-containing products at the end of life? You mentioned that these things typically have a 35-year lifespan. Are these air conditioning units? What, what are these things, and how can we help?
2: Well, it's all the cables.
0: Ah, the cables. And
2: if you, you see now the trend more and more into undergrounding of power cables, and, and these cables can probably live, 35 is an average, these cables can probably live 100 years. And after 100 years, are you going to dig it out? If in the meantime, you have built houses or plants or railway trucks on top of it. So that's part of, of the losses. So that's where we need to also think um, in the design, in the engineering of copper users. Can we improve the recyclability in terms of recuperating the product cable <clears throat> once, it's, um, once it's hitting the end of its life? instead of letting it sit there as is usually the case or <clears throat> when it's too complex to separate from other metals uh, or from and this is what we see more and more with the immunitarization of cell phones etc well then it becomes prohibitive economically to recuperate so that's where product design is important and europe is leading the way there with the the eco-design directives they're developing. It's really about thinking when you design a product, think about what is happening at the end, not only during the service of this product, but at the end, how can we recuperate a maximum out of it?
0: Absolutely fascinating. So going back to some of the things we touched about earlier in the podcast, copper is going to have essentially an exponential increase in demand between now and 2050. So a relatively short timeframe frame. Is copper the only raw material facing that challenge? Are there others? And if so, can we learn lessons from them?
2: Well, we, we do see today also quite a challenge for other metals like lithium that goes into the batteries. There, it's, it's even more than copper in terms of rate of increase of capacities that are needed to meet the demand which is expected in batteries. And it's not only electric batteries. Again, let's not forget, if we go to renewables, this is intermittent energy generation. If there is no sun, you get no electricity on your solar panels. That means you need more storage capacities in the grid and after the meter. And this is also uh, linked to metals like lithium or cobalt. So there is there also quite a, quite a challenge for these industries to be met. So that's where, again, we we should look at the big picture. Uh, Even if we manage to get all the supply of copper according to these forecasts, let's hope lithium can do, because otherwise you still won't have the batteries for these cars, which are in demand. So it's a multivariable equation in which we are playing
1: yeah and it's I mean, not even that is and it's not even just lithium it's um you know uh, nickel cobalt and and a lot and much will depend on the t- technologies that we 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 move down as well right um because the, the, the battery technologies are advancing all the time one thing we think certainly over the next 20 30 years um we, ha- we haven't seen many technologies that won't require copper foil um and you can not necessarily say the same for um for the other the other materials and the different technologies
0: all right so big question here how much is all of this going to cost?
1: Well, you know, as, as I've said earlier, you know, it's not not easy and not certainly not cheap either to uh, to develop a copper mining project. Um, you know, we we try and track all the mining projects that, that are out there in the world, and we we look at what their, their capital cost is, um, what what their economics look like. We think sort of the average capital intensity, so the the amount of capital needed per annual ton of copper produced, is anywhere between twenty and twenty five thousand dollars per annual ton of copper. Um, it's a simple equation, really. You, you multiply that by your, your supply gap over the next ten years, and that's investment of, of anywhere between twenty and twenty-five billion dollars a year of, of capital needed to, to to produce that that primary copper. So these are very large numbers. Is is it? How does it compare to uh, the past, and is is that usual in the sector? Well, there's only a period I'd say just leading up to a kind of booming growth between 2012 and 2014, um, where we saw Capital investment close to to that amount, um, but it was for a short period of time. Um, and and prior to that, we, we haven't really seen that amount of capital flowing into into the sector at, at all. In fact, it's been um, a fraction of that. Um, and we're talking about twenty odd billion uh, for a sustained period. So, yeah, it's a huge challenge. And there are obviously very various, various different sources of of capital. Um, and I, I think there is an understanding out there from 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 investors that um, this is an an exciting uh, sector, but um, it that needs to come to the table.
0: All right, next, so I have a follow- on then. What are the factors that are going to influence investment on new projects all the way through to the cost of the raw material themselves?
1: Yeah, so I mean if you think about the incentives, what's going to draw investment investment in prices, you know so an expectation of higher prices and and, 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 and and higher prices sooner. and I think look in the two scenarios we've looked at, um, it's quite diverging, certainly over the near term. If you look at the, the current market conditions, the outlook is it's not fantastic, to be honest. You know, the macro is looking, um, well the market's looking a bit nervous about about the future, and there is a concern that that could, in the near term, actually dampen demand, and therefore we could see prices soften, which would be um, very difficult then in, in that kind of environment to to see um, projects and investment moving forward when. Actually, all anyone, everyone else is concerned about is just pre- preserving their balance sheets. On the flip side, when we do uh, our accelerated energy transition uh, modeling, um, we we think about the fact that you know, there is an energy crisis now in Europe. For example, um, perhaps there is more going to be more infrastructure spend around renewables to sooner rather than later in order to help alleviate that. And, and actually, this all of this demand comes comes quicker. Um, and then in those that kind of scenario, we see uh, much higher prices near term. Um, and that would be enough or that would certainly help in, in incentivizing um, the development of those projects longer term. So it's going to be a quite a difficult balance over the near term, over this sort of weaker macro, and um, but equally trying to move projects forward that are going to help us in this this zero carbon journey.
0: Really insightful. Um, so we've talked about supply and demand, recycling and mining. We've even touched on the costs. What other pieces are important for listeners to know? Bernard, let's start with you.
2: Skills. Mining requires new skill sets also. Um, Mining is getting more difficult. Um, As we said, we want also technology to help, big data, remote trucks, uh, remote mining equipment, etc. So we need no punt intended. We need data miners. Um, We need analysts. We need people who are much more onto all the environmental questions. So we need new skills. We need to attract also new people, young people into the mining Sector and that's a challenge because yeah um, you don't find a mine in the center of a of a big city, it's usually in a remote area, but it's a fascinating world. We need to also get out as mining companies, as metal producers, to the young people and say you can have a great, interesting, fascinating career in this world. Also, Uh, it's not only the Amazons and Google of this world, uh, which are the interesting spots. And, and again, if we we need to cope with this increase of demand, we will need more people, and also with these new skill set. So that's that's quite um, quite a challenge also that we need to address now.
1: I, yeah, I, 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 I completely agree, and I think um, the, the other the other element to all of this, which perhaps we haven't uh, touched on, is. Is around government and government policy on the attitude towards mining and bringing on um, new projects. Uh, I think at the moment it's this: there is a recognition globally that um, there needs to be action on, on on climate change, and we want to be able to limit carbon emissions and so on. And, and actually, a lot of countries and governments now are talking about you know the the, the term critical minerals is kind of one that's being um, being talked about. But you know, copper is is vital as well. And at the same time, it seems to be getting harder to to to, to um, move forward mining, mining projects and so it's it's it is difficult you have communities uh, that, that probably don't want big mining projects built in their in their backyard and um, there's also other impacts on the, on the environment as well such as water. I think government and industry has to, to, to work together to find a solution ar- around this so the projects can get developed uh, quickly and also the mining companies feel happy about investing in certain regions of the world um, for the long term.
0: So then from a consumer action standpoint, aside from maybe learning more about potential mines and and really trying to understand the end-to-end life cycle of copper, what are some other things consumers can do? Do they need to be prepared to pay more for copper, for instance?
2: I think it's more about developing this mentality of reuse, don't spill. I'm sure all of us have two, three, five old cellular phones in the drawer at home or somewhere in the box in the cellar that we kind of forget <laughs> why don't we give it in there is a company in holland that actually collects these old phones and refurbish them and then puts them back on the market at a reduced price so i think it's this mentality about these are essential materials metals copper definitely one of them let's try and yeah and have these behavior like we've started with um With paper and glass also on the consumer side, there is more and more recycling because people sort their garbage and they use channels to recuperate these materials. So that's where, together with governments, to put these incentives, I think we need to also work on changing the mentality of saying, well, it's not because you don't use it any longer that it should disappear. Let's keep it circular, get it back into the loop. But we have to propose systems for that. People are not going to invent themselves how to recycle a uh, um, cellular phone. So we need to have also um, government decision, lawmaker to get also their acts together on this.
1: I think I think my concern is, and, I, and this is where the balance is between you know pr- price and having a. You talk to maybe some some producers, and they, they might get quite excited about the fact that there's this demand, and it might mean higher prices. But but you know the, 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 there's that concern around. Substitution, right, or or, or demand destruction. Um, if we if we get to a point where you know copper is so tight, um, that ultimately it just prolongs the the um, the ability for the world to to decarbonize and, and use those end uses if we can't supply it, or technology um, finds a way of, of of not using it. You know, as I say, the, it, it's difficult to see that uh, at the moment in in many end uses for copper, but um, that that's the risk. I don't think it helps anyone if you get to a situation where copper prices are are so high that um, you know it, it it's just not palatable for for you know for consumers
0: my mind is just still reeling about all these these copper numbers it seems like there's so many small places where action can be taken and hopefully by a sum of small pieces of action and also some big chunks as well large scale change can happen to sum up can you each give our listeners an overview of how producers, governments, and consumers are going to change in order to adapt to the evolving raw materials landscape.
1: Well, certainly for, for producers, I think it's clear they need to work um, together with investors to sanction more projects and commit to them. Um, you know, not to hold back for a better day and, and, and you know, move, move forward where you can. And, and for governments, it's it's working with that with industry to to recognise that it's, a, it's it's going to be a key commodity for, for the long term and for, for zero carbon and and i think we just touched on, on on you know on consumers higher prices are you know great for producers and not, not for for end users so it's uh, <laughs> i think we already you know covered covered that and bernard i think you, you may have some views on on consumers
2: yeah, well first maybe um, i'll give you three points one first point which i just want to to take opportunity of this um, this session to to somehow announce we are about finishing uh, quite an extensive exercise within the ICA membership, so Copper Producers, to define a decarbonization roadmap. It will be called Copper, the pathway to net zero. So the industry is also acting responsibly in trying to decarbonize also the production of copper, because every ton you produce today of copper, there is some CO2 emissions. So copper is not only a decarbonizer, uh, it's a key material for the transition, but we also want to be At the end of the road, we want to be also a zero-carbon product. So we're working on that and more about this uh, very early in 2023. But all these games, as I said earlier, this is so multivariable. For me, the key, and there is really an urgent need for that, the key is to have this holistic, integrated, and collaborative approach between all the parties. So everybody should get around the table investors, producers, governments, consumers, NGOs, you name it, lawmakers, etc. But we should get around the table without any fear and without any dogma. Ultimate goal, the agenda should be that all the parties around the table come out of this transition better off. So they shouldn't be winners and losers. It should be a win-win approach. And that's very important. Because indeed, when you hear people saying, oh, we could have a society without metals, well, I invite these people then to hand in their cell phones um, and I'm not sure how they're going to have bridges to cross rivers if this is this is not on the agenda. So we should all get together, no fear, no dogma, and try and work out a solution. And it's going to be difficult, yes, but it's so interconnected that you need this. You need this process of collaborative and comprehensive approach to the issue. And it's going to take time, huh? but we, we need to get, to get through this. And we've, we see this, for example, in the decarbonization roadmap exercise we've just run with our members. You cannot decarbonize alone. There is a lot that depends on partnerships, on reaching out, on agreeing, and less on competing. There is always competition. That's part of human behavior. That's fine. No, that's fine. That's life and and fully acceptable. But on some topics, we should maybe get one step further and say, how can we collaborate on finding a solution together on this? Because indeed, it depends on not only a company or a country. Sometimes it's much broader than that.
0: So where can listeners learn more about the work that you've been doing and about um, some of the things you've been teeing up with the European Copper Institute?
2: Well, we have our website, copperalliance.org. We are available 24-7 to answer questions. And as I said, we will, in early 2023, we will also come out with our um, decarbonization roadmap.
0: I'm very much looking forward to that. I'm going to gonna put a calendar placeholder in to shoot you an email, probably like January 1st. Be like, it's early 2023. When can I have it?
2: Can we do it January 2nd? That would be easier. <laughs>
0: you know what? <laughs> Let's do January 5th, just to make sure that That's it doesn't get lost
2: deal. in the post That's a deal. Yes.
0: Thank you both for this very, very insightful conversation today. Nick, first off, is there anyone else you would like to give a special thank you or shout out to today?
1: Yeah sure well the, the certainly our copper team uh, we've obviously done this research recently on on zero carbon but um you know it's it's a team effort um certainly Bavier, Eleni, Carl Emily the rest of the team um, all worked uh, very hard on 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 this uh, on this data modeling so yeah of course a uh, big thanks to them.
0: And where can listeners learn more about the work that you're doing at Woodmac?
1: Well it's, certainly they can uh, they, they can go on the Woodmack Woodmac uh, website contact details on there and, and and I'd be happy to answer any questions on the research that we've We've been doing. I'm I'm on LinkedIn, and and, feel free to reach out. No problem at all.
0: I can just hear your inbox blowing up with copper questions right now. And then uh, Bernard, same question for you. Is there anyone you'd like to give a special shout out or thank you to today?
2: Uh, Well, first to Wood Mackenzie for the initiative, and on top of this initiative, for the very good work that you are doing, and we we do use a lot of the work which is being done by the copper team because it's a it's a really I would say a good sounding board and center of expertise, uh, which is very important for our industry. And a special thanks to our members um, who are every day doing their best to try and get the copper that society needs.
0: And I know you already teed up where listeners can learn more about the work you're doing, but is there any other resources you'd like to share with
2: them? Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn, so feel free to link. And uh, I've just opened a Twitter account, so Bernard Respo on Twitter. And if there are questions, feel free to ask them and we'll do our best to answer.
0: Outstanding. And welcome to the Twitterverse. Thank you. Although I'm much more of a LinkedIn person myself, so you can always slide into my LinkedIn DMs. Mm -hmm. Thank you both. This was truly a mind-blowing conversation. I I am excited for the people sitting next to me on airplanes in the foreseeable future because they're going to hear all about copper. These random strangers that are going to be next to me have a lot of really cool things to look forward to. And that would not be possible without both of you and your attendance on this podcast. So thank you.
2: Thank you to you. Have a very good day. Thank you.
0: Getting to net zero will require a global collective effort, utilizing renewables, shifting to electric vehicles and investing in new energy technologies. These in turn require raw materials to work and copper is a key resource. In the form of wire, cable, and foil, copper will be in huge demand in the coming decades. Wood Mackenzie predicts a need for 9.7 megatons over the next decade. A supply shortage of that size has never been overcome within 10 years, so the industry has a pretty massive challenge ahead. But as we've heard, it is possible. More than that though, it's essential. Governments, manufacturers, and consumers must all play their part. We have the tools to drive the energy transition. Now we need to focus on supplying the raw materials to power them. Thank you for joining us on the October edition of the Horizons podcast. Thanks to Nick and Bernard for being with us today. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and we'll see you on the next episode.